All right. Um, I had announced that this would be a four-week, four-part series. We're going to insert a fifth, which will be two weeks from today. So the next part of this will be Sunday, October 29th. So the remaining three are October 29th, November 12th, and November 19th, Lord willing. Um, also wanted to make sure you know that at the end of the series, I'll give you a whole bunch of resource recommendations. So as you see books and resources kind of go by today, um, I'll be giving you all of those things later on and, and many more also. So last week we started by considering the two opposite approaches to this issue. First is the ideology of transgender that we pictured like this, and then the biblical approach to gender. Um, I don't have any time to review that, but last week's recording is available for you to go back to and also for you to share. So this morning, I'd like to begin with one historical question and then jump into the science for a little while before we get to why. So this question is transgender something new? And the answer is no and yes. For nearly all of human history, there is evidence that some people wanted to be the other sex, and especially within certain types of idol worship, evidence of gruesome procedures to do that. Um, We have evidence of that both in Old Testament and New Testament times. So in that sense, uh, trans goes back as far as human history goes back, that desire of the human heart. Um, even some of the transgender treatments that are in the headlines today aren't really that new. In the 1920s, there were doctors in Germany who, were, um, who taught that humans are both man and woman at the same time, and they started attempting transgender surgeries. In the mid-1900s, there were doctors in Germany and the U.S. who popularized the use of cross-sex hormones to try to trans- transition people. So in several senses, transgender is not new. And yet the ideology, that package that we presented last week, is fairly new. Um, that would be last 30 to 40 years. Um, what, is ve- what is very, very new is its dominant takeover of American thought and life. That's what has happened in the past 10 or 15 years, and even especially the last eight years At a dizzyingly fast pace, gender identity became the most fashionable social justice issue of our day. Part of what's surprising about that is that we all remember there were other social justice issues that were the big deal not too long ago. And so transgender pushed them out of the way over the last 10 years or so, supporting and affirming people who want to amputate healthy body parts has become a moral duty, Dr. Weirakun writes. And in some countries in Europe or in U.S. states like California that have a democratic supermajority, the pace of change has been the fastest of all. So the fundamental questions about gender identity and the fundamental tendencies of the human heart are not new at all. But the current situation in which the worlds of medicine, psychology, research, science, education, government, entertainment, media, sports, technology are all unified enforcing this ideology, that is unprecedented, at least about an issue so fundamental to reality as this. Of course, here in California, we're told we better get on board with this or we're going to be on the wrong side of history. Interesting that several major European countries have backtracked already on the exact same policies that California is currently fast-tracking. 
So time will tell about that wrong side of history thing. So let's move on to a vital question, and I'm going to get, I'm just going to dabble in the science for a little bit this morning. Um, Aren't there people who really are biologically intersex? There are a number of different, um, they're often called DSDs, disorders of sexual development, that can occur. Uh, Dr. Weira Kuhn, there are a diverse group of congenital conditions in which genetic, chromosomal, gonadal, or anatomical sex is abnormal. Most of those with such a condition have a genital structure that is unambiguously either male or female and a felt gender to match. Many, however, are infertile. One of the most common of these is Kleinfelter's syndrome. Uh, We actually have someone in our church with a family member with Kleinfelter's. Kleinfelter's syndrome is when a boy has an extra X chromosome, so an XXY chromosome pattern. That's from an error in the cell division in the parents um, in the production of their uh, reproductive ingredients. Um, Kleinfelter's, about about two-thirds of the time, it's minor enough that it goes undiagnosed, but there are times when it can be more severe and result in underdeveloped sexual anatomy and infertility, and it can affect a boy's personality and his muscle development and his speech. Um, So Kleinfelter's is a a real type of suffering. They estimate about 1 in 500 or 1 in 1,000 boys have Kleinfelter's, though, of course, again, many of those will be very mild cases. One, One thing that's interesting is as you read the literature about Kleinfelter's, they clearly say that those who have Kleinfelter's are boys, but with a disorder in their development, right? And that's, that's the case. There's, there are a variety of other chromosomal, very rare chromosomal variations. There's another type in which a female is born with only one um, instead of two X chromosomes, and she develops as a female, but some of her sexual anatomy can be underdeveloped, and again, she can be infertile. That's about one in every 2,500 female babies. And then there are other chromosomal disorders that are like 1 in 13,000, 1 in 20,000, extremely rare. Um, In all, about 1 in 2,000 babies is born with some type of disorder in their sexual anatomy, um, whether that's minor or major. And that is a kind of suffering and a kind of challenge that we should recognize and we should care about very deeply because that is a profound kind of suffering, right? To be born sterile or to be born unable to have a normal sexual relationship, that is a severe suffering. Or even to be a boy yet with weaker muscles and bone structure and not all of the normal male characteristics, that is very hard. But I imagine that as we talk about this, at some point you probably start to think, wait a second, what does that have to do with this? You can see that in the middle of this slide, it says... It doesn't matter. Biology doesn't matter because all that truly matters is the gender identity that you discern about yourself or choose for yourself. So there is not a relationship between sexual development disorders and this transgender ideology package. But what's sad is that transgender activists take the people who have been born with a sexual development disorder And they hold them up as the proof of transgender ideology. 
because you were born with malformed sexual parts, I can be a mermaid. That is not the way it works. That is not true. Um, And frankly, it's kind of angering because it's just taking advantage of people who are born with a real physical suffering. These are disorders because our bodies are broken under the curse of sin. People with disorders of sexual development are not cool people who managed to get so lucky that they ended up somewhere between male and female. They are males or females who are suffering because of something that went wrong in a congenital defect that does nothing to validate transgender ideology. But you wouldn't know that from YouTube and TikTok. Does science support the idea of a male brain in a female body or vice versa? So this is a theory to explain transgenderism that is called prenatal hormone theory. Basically, the idea is that during the development of the baby in the womb, different types of hormone exposure mean that the body develops as one sex while the brain develops as as another. But there is very little evidence for this. And one of the huge weaknesses with this theory is that while there are definite biological differences between males and females, obviously, the brain isn't one of those places where we see significant biological differences. Now, male brains are bigger, we know that, but outside of that, there are very few differences between the male and female brain. And so that makes, that undermines the foundation of this whole idea. Um, You can read details about the research in Alan Branch's book, but Dr. Wirakun summarizes it this way, male and female brain differences appear trivial. There is no clear evidence of male and female brains apart from size, There is no evidence that someone can be born with a girl's brain in a boy's body. Um, It is scientific gibberish to say that kind of a sentence, that can be born with a girl's brain in a boy's body. Another question that comes up, I was asked this at church last Sunday, but it's also a verse that's sometimes um, used in in the transgender movement. Uh, What about the eunuchs? In Matthew 19, verse 12, Jesus said, There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus here refers to three groups of males who don't have normal sexual relationships with a woman. The first is the, those who were that way from birth. That might mean they have a DSD like we were just talking about, um, but it could mean they have another uh, congenital disorder that means they can't have a normal sexual relationship. Secondly, there are those who are made that way by men. This would be like slaves who were castrated so they wouldn't cause sexual trouble in the palace. It wasn't something they chose, and they were still men. They were just sexually incapable men. And third... There are those who chose to remain unmarried for the purpose of serving the kingdom of God. This passage in Matthew 19 is really very much like the beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 56 that promises that eunuchs are very valuable in the kingdom of God, even though they never have earthly children of their own. So Matthew 19.12 has nothing to do with modern transgenderism except this one thing. It does mean 
that a person who transitioned and underwent surgeries that mean that for the rest of their life they'll never be able to have children, were they to repent and come back to Christ, there is hope for them. God says to them, you are precious. You are honored, despite what you did to your body um, through that. That's the one point where Matthew 19, 12 connects. But it is in no way some sort of proof for transgenderism. All right, so I'm just touching very briefly on some of the science issues here. Biological sex is determined at fertilization, and our bodies then develop as male or female from that moment on. There are rare disorders in that development, such as malformed sexual anatomy. But even though transgender activists claim those disorders as proof, they actually don't do anything to validate transgender ideology. The disorders are evidence that we live in a broken world. Our bodies have been deeply impacted by sin and the curse, and we are laboring under that curse, knowing that someday Jesus is going to come again and make it right and make our bodies new. Praise the Lord. Um, Is there a trans gene? And the, the real question, though it's helpful to keep in mind what the real question is here, the real question is, can you perform a DNA test on a child in the womb and determine if he or she will be transgender? And the answer is absolutely not. Not even remotely close. Now, they are researching this intensely. They badly want to find something like a trans gene. And so when they find the slightest correlation, even in very small sample sizes, they make a big headline out of it. And you can read about all that research in Alan Branch's book, but none of that research has come remotely close to finding something that suggests that transgender people were born that way. From a Christian perspective, we are not concerned about whether they find genetic connections or not because we already know that our bodies can incline us toward particular temptations. We know that's true with alcoholism. We know that's true with drug abuse. That's true with things like being overly aggressive or overly passive. Because we are a unity of body and soul, all of our behavior has physical factors. But those factors don't give us an excuse for our sin. Do any of you have mood swings? To ask that question is to ask, do any of you have a body? (laughs) Right? Every person with a body has mood swings because that's a physical thing. It relates to blood sugar and hormones and other stuff going on in our bodies. But the fact that mood swings have a physical component doesn't make it right for me to be nasty to everybody just because I feel like I'm in a bad mood. God's grace is greater than what our bodies might incline us to do. So the bottom line in what we've talked about so far is that there is no objective way to diagnose transgenderism. It is ultimately a psychological phenomenon. It is a feeling. Douglas Murray writes, trans may in the years to come, and he's, Murray's not a Christian, by the way, but He says, trans may in the years to come turn out to be psychologically or biologically provable, 
And we just explained what that would really mean. What that would really mean is there may be some people who have an inclination in that direction, like we all have an inclination towards certain sins. Trans may in the years to come turn out to be psychologically or biologically provable, but we don't even have much idea which field it might ever come under. That is how uh, vague it is at this point. Schreier writes, there are no diagnostic or empirical criteria for deciding that a biological girl is, in fact, really a boy. Again, from a scientific standpoint, that is gibberish to say that. What is gender identity? It has no diagnostic markers, no measurable signs, no blood test to confirm it. It is a feeling, an attitude. That does not mean that it does not exist, but it does mean that like many psychiatric ailments, it poses challenges to diagnosis and treatment because it's a feeling. After really extensively surveying the scientific data, Alan Branch says it this way, no one knows what causes gender dysphoria from a clinical, measurable uh, standpoint. And he also... Branch quotes from the American Psychological Association's Handbook of Clinical Psychology. Here's what they say. It is currently impossible to diagnose gender dysphoria on the basis of objective criteria. So Dr. Wirakun Gender identity, who I feel I am, is completely subjective. That doesn't invalidate the struggle. That's not the point. It doesn't invalidate the struggle. It just means that all of the trans ideology attempts to prove that it's something hardwired into us come up completely short, like leap across the Grand Canyon kind of short. There is no clinical scientific way to diagnose trans genderism. So I need to move on from the science, but two final reminders about that. First of all, remember that while trans ideology is trying so hard to find evidence that trans is hardwired into you, they don't want to find that evidence. Because remember, you're free to choose from an endless variety of gender options, and it's totally up to you. But they want both, and that is simply because Satan is a He's a confuser, and he somehow gets people so turned around that they think they can have both of those things, proof that it's hardwired into them, and at the same time, the freedom to just choose it, and that's fine, while it's actually absurd. Secondly, remember that we can't blindly trust the findings of science in this area. Now, you guys, most of you know, I come from a family with many scientists I think very highly of true scientific research. And yet, in this particular field, there are three reasons to be really skeptical about the headline of the latest research. First, the research often comes through institutions of higher ed that are completely in the back pocket of transgender ideology. And then the research is announced through media outlets that are completely in the back pocket of transgender ideology. Second, and this is true of many fields of research, I realize, but trans is a huge industry. And there are certain scientific findings that could result in a huge loss of profits for the industry. Third, no one is allowed to disagree with trans ideology in our world today. And so, scientific research isn't allowed to disagree either. Or else the scientists themselves must be bigots and haters. So, for all of those reasons, 
um, it is hard to trust the headlines about trans-related scientific research. Not that we should ignore it completely, but very large grain of salt. There is no other issue where there is a never-ending demand not just to change the language, but to make up the science around it. We have begun to manipulate and distort scientific truth and empirical research to fit the transgender ideological agenda. All right. So what we've seen so far is that there are rare intersex conditions. They are disorders of sexual development. They don't in any way validate transgender ideology. We've also seen that the scientific evidence for trans identity is very scarce. There is no way to test a baby in the womb and accurately predict transgender behavior. There are no medical tests for transgender. But even if we were able to do those things, that wouldn't take away our responsibility to seek God's grace and walk in obedience to him. So now, that leads us to the question that I want to spend the rest of our time on today and our next time on, and that is, if our biology isn't a significant reason why people experience gender dysphoria, then why? Why do people experience gender dysphoria? And again, here I'm using the term dysphoria in its very broad sense, not the technical sense. Last week, I gave a very brief three-point answer to this question, physical suffering, social pressures, and sinful desire. But I'd like to take that very general three points and expand it into a much more robust answer. One of the strengths of the biblical worldview is that the Bible recognizes that humans are very complex beings. In trans ideology, the explanation for trans is very simple. Either you're born that way or you want to be that way. That's all there is to it. From a biblical standpoint, we would say human beings are way more complex than that picture you're portraying. So why do people experience gender dysphoria? Let's list many of the factors that might come into play. Number one, abuse and trauma. People who identify as transgender were far more likely to have experienced high levels of emotional neglect during childhood or to have faced very painful and disturbing experiences in childhood. And that should grieve our hearts, right? And we should also include this, that people who identify as transgender were far more likely to have had very early sexual experiences, which is another type of abuse, right? Um... And so those are unfortunately significant factors, abuse and trauma. Number two, adolescence and puberty. In any discussion about trans, teenagers come to the forefront. Why? Because when you look at the number of people with gender dysphoria, it is dominantly teenagers. There are occasional middle-aged and older women even less occasional men, not that it doesn't happen, but, but statistically, the dominant majority of people who are identifying as trans are tweens and teens. And so it's helpful to remember that adolescence is a challenging time and that puberty in particular creates a, a very difficult time in the body of the young person. There are rapid changes that are uncomfortable, they're confusing, they can be embarrassing, some of those changes are very evident for other people to, to see 
you know, you can't cover the acne unless you're going to go full on, you know, little eye holes. And that's all you're going to show of your face. It's, and that's not the only thing that can become physically evident to other people. Some of those changes are directly related to our sexual anatomy, and they start at a time when, unless kids have been needlessly exposed to the world, puberty starts at a time when kids have the, not the slightest interest in sex. It's not even on their minds at all, and it shouldn't be unless they've been, you know, soaked in the world's culture. And yet their body, is, their sexual anatomy starts changing. And so kids start to realize much more than ever, and that's the right word, right? Kids start to realize much more than ever, oh, I'm a man, or I'm a woman. And these changes, they come from a cascade of hormones in our body. So the young person has feelings that are all over the map as their body changes so rapidly. And, and I haven't looked into the science of this to know what they're saying they think the reasons are, but puberty is starting earlier and earlier. And no kid signs up for these changes. You don't, you don't get a waiver, just a proof. Oh, okay, puberty can begin now. They just happen. Parents don't sign up for these changes. We don't get a waiver. Now, let's be quick to add that puberty is not a disease. It is not bad. It's actually a very good and healthy process of change in our bodies. God designed it. But it comes with challenges. And so it's very easy to see why this is a time, and this is where it's just, you can get so furious about this. It's okay to get furious about this. Kids are very vulnerable to transgender ideology because puberty is already making them uncomfortable in their body. The social challenges of a teenager are probably already making them feel like they don't fit in. Many teenagers feel like, I'm just different, which is funny because they're all feeling that way. And a trans influencer shows up and says, do you feel different Do you feel like you don't fit in? Are you uncomfortable with your body? And we would say, duh, welcome to adolescence. But the trans ideology says, ah, we have an answer for you. We know how to solve this problem. You're actually trans. And if you'll transition, these problems will go away. It is a lie, but it is appealing. And it is especially appealing for teenage girls. Trans is much more prevalent among young people than older people. And it is much more prevalent among girls than boys. And I'm not going to say much more about that because there's an entire book about it. But you should read the book. Now, she's not a Christian. She says a lot of things I disagree with. But Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage is something you just, you all ought to read. Um, She masterfully describes how transgender ideology appeals to to the deepest longings of a teenage girl's heart. And it's a lie that ends up doing so much damage. All right. Can somebody bring me a Kleenex maybe? Number three, 
People experience gender dysphoria because of anxiety about manhood and womanhood and sex. A young person's body is changing to become much more evidently male or female. And at the same time, they're trying to wrap their mind around what it means to be male or female. Who am I as a man or a woman? I remember that when I turned 13, I read somewhere that Abraham Lincoln became a man when he turned 13. And my 13-year-old mind said, I'm a man now. But what does that even mean? Today, it's confusing, and it's even frightening for many young people. Start with manhood. In Western societies today, masculinity is basically considered to be a disease. Literally, the American Psychological Association guidelines describe traditional masculinity as a psychological illness and advises therapists to train that out of men. Train men to not be men because masculinity is a disease. So then, who wants to be a man when simply being one apparently makes you toxic? As Douglas Murray writes, according to modern ideologies, oh, I didn't put it up here, the male half of the species could be treated as though it was cancerous. So, hey, anybody want to transition to be a girl instead? Meanwhile, over on the girl's side... Schreier writes, the gifts, and she means gifts tongue-in-cheek, the gifts and presumptions of this culture make it hard to imagine why anyone should want to be a girl. And we could talk about this all day. We could talk about all sorts of stereotypes of what a woman's body is supposed to look like in our porn culture today, what her career is supposed to be like. One of the things that's driven me crazy as a dad of girls is how it seems like the only girls who count today are the ones who become CEOs or brain surgeons. Where did that come from? I mean, I know where it came from, but again, you have to read Schreier. She describes this brilliantly. Andrew Walker also describes this very well. Schreier's conclusion after extensive research among teen girls is that in our society today, teen girls flee womanhood like a house on fire. And she's not talking about biblical womanhood. She's talking about cultural womanhood. Meanwhile, being a boy is cancerous and toxic. So, hey, suddenly being an otherkin or a mermaid doesn't sound so bad. Or being gender, Who would want to be any of this? And it's so maddening because what the Bible pictures is so good. I should have slept last night. (laughs) All right. This might also be a good time to point out that transgender ideology, ironically, tends to amplify ridiculous gender stereotypes. Remember last week I used the knitting example? As if knitting is a biblical gender essential. Dr. Weirakun writes, a biological boy who loves music Dancing and the color pink is no longer allowed to be a beautifully creative boy. His behavior demonstrates that he must be a trans girl. 
and a biological girl who loves sport and is fiercely competitive is no longer allowed to be a potential female Olympic athlete. She must be a trans boy. This doesn't help kids be who God created them to be. It just confuses them further. So what we're saying is that anxiety about manhood and womanhood can be a factor in transgender identity. But also included in this point is anxiety about sex. And I won't say very much about this because of our, our audience here, but in today's society, women are objectified as much as ever, despite some of the pushback on that. Pornography gets more and more brutal and ugly. Children are being exposed to pornography younger and younger. By their early teens, most kids in the world know far more about sexual perversion than an adult needs to know. And they're 10. And many have had disturbing sexual experiences, including abuse. And so I won't say more about that, but I think you can see how anxiety about sex could make transgender appealing for some young people. <laughs> Number four, disabilities. I won't spend time on this, but if you do some basic research, you'll see that among people who identify as transgender, there is a higher rate of certain disabilities like autism. And again, that is infuriating because it seems likely that these young people are being taken advantage of by trans ideology. Number five, this will be no surprise to you, so I won't try to get into big details here. We could spend all day on it, but public education. We are very grateful for the people in our church family who are serving the Lord in public education. This is no criticism of you at all. But just to summarize very brief examples of what a young person might experience, in kindergarten, their California-approved materials will introduce to them discussions about gender that are, that are framed from the standpoint of transgender ideology. By elementary school, the books read in the classroom are directly indoctrinating kids about the virtue of gender transitions. By middle school, one of the most highly respected middle school health curricula encourages teachers to ask their students questions like, quote, how would you feel to be another gender? What would be fun about being another gender? This is middle school. By high school, teens may find that their school is celebrating Bisexual Awareness Week in September, LGBTQ History Month in October, which also includes Banned Books Week, Coming Out Day, and International Pronouns Day. November is Trans Awareness Month and includes Solidarity Week, Transgender Awareness Week, and Transgender Day of Remembrance. December includes Pansexual Pride Day. March has the International Transgender Day of Visibility. April has Lesbian Day of Visibility. May has International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia, as well as Pansexual Visibility Day, and we haven't even gotten to June. And then you get to college, and as Abigail Schreier writes, virtually everything that transgender activists hope to achieve in the broader culture has already been achieved on college campuses. To use just one example, that includes things like cross-sex hormones available to the students on campus without even a note from a therapist required, and for something like $10 with their college health plan. So much more could be said about education, I know. Check out chapter 4 in Trier's book. She talks about California a lot. But the point is this. This is how gender ideology is taught in schools, with the materials, curricula, speakers, and teacher training supplied by gender activists. So, why trans? 
because of public education. Next, why trans? Because of the what I call the embargo. And what I mean is no dissent is allowed. No one is ever allowed to disagree or you are one of those haters and oppressors who doesn't care about the suicide of trans youth. This is where books like Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds and Pluck Rose and Lindsay's Cynical Theories are really helpful. These are not Christian authors. There's all kinds of stuff in this book, these books that is, is very unbiblical. But they recount story after story of the ways in which anyone who dares to question these ideologies gets fired, gets silenced, gets attacked, gets threatened, gets removed. Even progressive feminists, even transgender activists, even far-left-wing, extremely liberal politicians, anybody who dares raise the slightest concern about any part of transgender ideology gets demonized. In Dr. Wirakun's book, she gives a long list of professionals who have opposed trans ideology at great cost, even though most of them are not Christians, not even religious. Abigail Schreier has a whole chapter titled The Dissenters. Andrew Walker writes, Few movements are as directly confrontational with basic liberty or as fast to seek to shut down any dissenting opinion. And he goes on to say, a movement truly confident in its position would not stifle dissent, but would welcome it, since refinement is supposed to make arguments and worldviews more coherent. But coherent and the devil are not two words that ever went together, like I said earlier. And ironically, In all of this, the transgender movement says that their goal is to stop bullying when it seems like bullying is what they're best at. So why trans? Because of the embargo against any disagreement. Why trans? Number seven, entertainment. And I will not go into any specific examples here. I do not want to promote anything. But the entertainment industry is in the back pocket of the trans movement. You know that. Music superstars have written songs that are the anthems of the transgender movement. Certain movies are, even movies that we would think of as being innocent movies, are icons of the transgender community. Of course, the whole Disney princess world, you can be anything you want to be, you can change into anything you want to be, you can leave behind your dumb parents and tradition and just be true to yourself. That whole thing feeds right into trans ideology. And, of course, there are many movies that glorify transgender behavior that kids can get to very easily today on their TVs. So why trans entertainment? Number eight, why trans? Because of health care. <laughs> the doctor's office should not be a place of ideology, but in this area, it definitely is. Now, I'm going to come back in a later week and talk about the way in which trans ideology contradicts the basic principles of healthcare. We'll talk about how trans ideology results in healthcare professionals actually giving people diseases as well as amputating healthy organs. But for now, I'm, I'm talking about the healthcare system. Just want to note a couple things. So, the Affordable Care Act of 2010 put hormonal and surgical treatments for people who want to transition genders into the same category as hormonal and surgical treatments for people who have diseases and illnesses that require those treatments. And so that has required, since then, insurance companies to cover all of that and treat them just the same. So the person who needs an amputation because of gangrene 
and the person who just wants an amputation for gender reasons, it's all the same in U.S. healthcare. There's no difference. So the girl who shows up at a doctor's office and says, I want to be a boy, has a fairly simple fast track to hormonal treatments and then surgical treatments with insurance required to pay for it all the way through. So that obviously feeds the trans industry that we mentioned earlier. And also, we live in a time when the mindset is that there's a pill for everything. We should be able to get out of any human suffering by taking some medication that should be free for us. And so is it any surprise that if you offer teenagers a pill to ease the challenges of adolescence, they'll take it? Here's a pill, a puberty blocker, a cross-sex hormone. Folks, you, we, we, I could horrify us for the next few minutes if we went online and watched videos promoting tea and the wonder of testosterone and how you ought to do it and how it'll change your life. This will heal your anxiety. This will get you through these challenges of adolescence. It's so cool and there's no risks, no harms. And here's how to talk your parents into giving it to you. Okay, so much more could be said, but my point is that healthcare is part of the problem. Why trans? Because trans ideology dominates our healthcare system, or at least the laws that govern it. All right, one last factor today, and then we'll have to continue this list in two weeks. Okay. I gotta take a breath. Okay, if I could oversimplify for just a moment, I'm going to suggest four different approaches to the treatment of gender dysphoria. I'm referring particularly when someone comes and says, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Um, and so that could, I'm talking about how a therapist, how a school counselor, how a doctor, how a parent could respond to a young person with gender dysphoria. And... Um, I'm not trying to be technical here. I could be. We could use technical terms. That's not what I'm trying to do. Some of this is technical, and some of this I I made up my own words. Okay? One approach would be affirmation only. That's what we talked about last week, which would be you believe what they say about their identity. If they say they're a boy, they are. Believe it. Secondly, you approve of it. You give your full approval to whatever identity they're saying they have. And thirdly, you support it. So if, help them toward hormonal treatments. Help them toward surgical treatments. Do whatever you have to do to support them in that identity. So that would be affirmation only. Another option would be what is often called supportive waiting. Uh, this would mean that the adult approves of what they're saying, is very supportive, but also encourages patients about taking too big of steps in the transition. So I believe you that you really are a boy. I support you completely in this. Let's not rush too fast to starting to take hormones and stuff, though. Um, before we take any big steps, let's just be, let's go slowly. Okay, that would be supportive waiting. A third approach we could call cautious waiting. So this would take into account some of the factors that we've been talking about today. This would realize, you know, there might be a lot of pressures on this young person. They might be right in the middle of puberty. They might be getting bullied at school. There might be anxieties. There might be some reasons why they're feeling this way. And so let's, 
let's be cautious about jumping on the idea of gender change as the answer for them. We might even consider encouraging them to learn to accept the body they have instead of resenting it. That would be cautious waiting. And then I totally made up this fourth one. These are my words. I was trying to figure out how to put a Christian approach in two words. (laughs) So this could be a sentence, I realize. But I'm going to call it truth-based growing. And I'm trying to describe a Christian approach. Now, this does not mean you're any less caring or you're any less compassionate, but it's also growing through this in the truth. You're a boy or you're a girl. That's God's good creation of you. And it might be hard right now. You might be really mad at what your body's doing right now. You might be really uncomfortable about whether you're really up to being a man or a woman, what that's going to mean. There could be a lot of things going on, and you might be suffering, but by God's grace, we can grow through this. So we're going to walk through this with you, this hard time with you, tenderly, graciously, graciously, patiently, but we're going to walk with you in the truth that you are the boy or girl God created you to be. And God, we can grow through this hard time. Okay, four, four approaches. Now, we could have a discussion about which of those approaches is best. And I mean, we're Christians, so I know which one we're going to vote for. But outside of that, we could, have an appro- we could still have a discussion about it, right? Like, of the other approaches, which would be best? But in mental health care today in America, there is no discussion. Only one of those appro- approaches is approved by the American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Psychological Association. And you know which one it is. And in more or more places, that affirmation-only approach is not only the only one endorsed by the medical accrediting associations, it's the one required by law. So there is no discussion allowed about whether the second or third of these might be better for some young people. One of the four is mandated and the others are increasingly forbidden at penalty of law. From a Christian standpoint, that's terrible. But even from a non-Christian standpoint, this isn't the way we normally handle mental challenges. If somebody walks into the therapist's office and says, I am the President of the United States, the therapist does not say, yes, you are. Now be true to yourself, go take over the White House, get rid of the current incumbent, and move in. I know some of you want that to happen, but that's not what a therapist is going to say, right? If someone comes to a therapist and says, I am the ugliest person in the world, I don't deserve to live, most therapists won't say, you're right, let me find somebody who will get rid of you. If someone says, I'm a horrible husband, and my wife should leave me, the therapist doesn't say, you're right, let me help you figure out a way to get rid of your wife, to get your wife to leave you. Schreier writes, genuine therapy pushes patients to question their own self-assessments. Duh! Except when a teenage girl comes in and says, I'm a boy. And then the accrediting agencies or even the law itself require affirmation only. 
And so Schreier says this, and she's paraphrasing a psychotherapist named Lisa Marciano. Mental health professionals are withholding the independent judgment and therapeutic help that confused adolescents desperately need. If anything, affirmative therapy encourages a confused adolescent's most dangerous impulses. Folks, we're only halfway through the list. So we'll return to this next two weeks from today. Finish it out, because we've got some big, big factors we haven't even talked about yet. So what we're seeing here is a lot of factors that are damaging young people today. Oh, the irony. When transgender ideology, man, they are, right now, they have got the moral high ground. They have put themselves on it. They are the ones who love kids. They are the ones who take care of kids. They are the ones who protect the vulnerable. They are the ones who stand up to bullies. And oh, how the rest of us are mean, nasty oppressors, abusers. Really? Is there nothing going on around these young people that is actually damaging them? Is there no part of trans ideology that is actually doing a whole lot more harm than the good it claims to be doing? Is there not a world that is leaving young people hurt and confused and then when they come to us with their hurts and their confusion, we blindly affirm their self-assessment and fast-track them into a money-making gender transition machine that can permanently harm them? Can I read that sentence again? When the young people come to us confused, we blindly affirm their self-assessment and fast-track them into a money-making gender transition machine that can permanently harm them. May God have mercy. And may we be part of a multitude of truth speakers who are going to have to try to shine light into this darkness. All right, more two weeks from today. Father, help us. Have mercy. Our nation may not deserve mercy, but these kids need you. What transgender ideology is trying to sell them is actually found only in Christ. May we be part of some of them finding it in Christ. I pray in your Jesus' name. Amen.